1: and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this.
0: Hello, uh, this is Lynn Ponton of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen, and I'm here today with Jen. How are you feeling today, Jen?
1: Doing good, I'm excited to talk about today's topic. I had no idea that today was,
0: Equal payday. (laughs) Right,
1: yes. So you brought that to my attention.
0: Today, uh, and we should say fairly, we're at April 10th, 2018. Equal payday is the day up to which the typical woman must work in a particular year to catch up with the average man uh, and what they have earned uh, the previous year. And what this really means is with the pay, the gender differential in pay for men and women that uh, women are working these extra hours each year. Four months. Yeah, it's a long, long time to make that extra pay. And, you know, you think about it with some of the other issues we've been talking about, the child care issues with women and um, promotional issues with women. And so this is a very important day. And uh, I'd recommend that our listeners look at the op-ed editorial uh, by Lily Ledbetter. And uh, it's entitled, Me Too Can Help Close the Gender Pay Gap. So maybe just to say a little bit about it, Lily Ledbetter worked for Goodyear, tire company, I guess it's more than tires, but in this op-ed, she talks about really her long history of being treated unfairly at Goodyear, and uh, that she carried the phone number of the EEOC in her back pocket, as she put it. And um, she also must have had an attorney because she had both an EEOC lawsuit and a civil lawsuit against Goodyear. And she uh, won apparently uh, both of these. Maybe not. We'd have to hear more details. But it's really formidable. The uh, I'm familiar uh, with the Goodyear lawsuit because I had a minor role, and that is uh, a an, an you know person, an expert that they sought out in women's issues at that point in time. But it's impressive that she also got the EEOC involved because I think. Lily's story is explains a little bit about what women were doing during those years before Me Too and before things were happening, you know, and things were still very, very discrepant, but women were in the workforce and they were dealing with some of these issues of the the pay and promotion discrepancy. Yeah,
1: and I know I'm not talking that much today <laughs> here, but it's because I wasn't alive or, you know, I wasn't in the workforce. Let's put it that way. I wasn't in the workforce at this time. And I think it is really helpful to hear the history and understand what people had to go through, what we're still going through too, but also how different in many ways it was at that time.
0: And I think for me this article had a particular import because, um, uh, as I've talked about before, you know I had both an EEOC and a civil lawsuit against my employer, the University of California, and I won a class action finding uh, thanks to my attorney and just maybe to say the attorney at that time was Charlotte Fishman, who also had other uh, lawsuits against UC that she successfully concluded. Um, I also work with an attorney named Michael Bradley, who's been unbelievably helpful. He was employed here in San Francisco and deals with gender discrimination suits. But I think it points out for women, you know, to really traverse difficult ground in hard settings, you know, during that time, I think many women thought of contacting attorneys, whether or not they did it. Uh, you know, I think that's a really big question. I do know from my own experience that the EEOC, because of financial limitations during the 80s, was only able to follow up on between 1% and 3% of the cases that they were confronted with. So they often would issue a right-to-sue letter which would throw the opportunity back or responsibility back on the women and force them to push forward a civil lawsuit. So they then had to use their own money, you know, or look for an attorney who would take it, you know, on a contingency basis, which was very hard to find. Um, So you see all of these women really struggling and many women afraid to really take these actions. You know, reading Lily's op-ed, she was afraid really to act differently at work. You know, after she put forward some of these things and tried to change things, she was scapegoated by the other employees. Nobody talked to her for years. This was also my experience, that once you come forward, they scapegoat you. They do everything possible to make your work life a nightmare. And uh, that one goes on for years and years and years. So it's kind of the new norm for you.
1: And I mean, that's so tragic. And on top of that really is this idea of having to be in the same space with the person who caused that, right? I can see that it's bringing up some feelings (laughs) for you and understandably so, you know? And I think that that really adds to it because not only are you having to deal with what maybe are you know, people who are your colleagues and stuff, but you're having to be in the same environment that is so traumatizing.
0: I think that among many things, Lily writes most eloquently about having to be her boss was her abuser and how she had to face him. Um, You know, they actually removed her from the workplace, uh, which was my experience that uh, I was removed from the workplace and then eventually had to go back, and, and now they move remove the abuser from the workplace. So that's a big, big difference. So you're isolated by removal from the workplace, and then when you do return, you return as a pariah, and you return with tremendous post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms of that. And she talks about that, and that was also my experience from this whole thing. And you carry that forward, and it—you uh, know—you can stand up for things, but you're traumatized by it. And thinking about it, and effectively helping others is a challenge. Both Lily and I went on to work in various organizations. I worked in wage. We advocate gender equity for women, and she worked in a variety of organizations. Those are helpful, I think. Uh, But again, I think the question is, what were women doing in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s before Me Too? I think they were doing a lot, but they were also enduring a lot.
1: Well, I think there was also, when you don't have a system in place that supports the victims, then it falls a lot on the victim to have to be their own advocate. And that's a very tough position to be in. She mentions in the article, I believe, that you know at stake for her was like well if i speak up in this account will i lose my job do i then lose my livelihood these are these are very real consequences that people face and there is no without that support net under them then it makes it much harder it's not as simple as just why didn't you say anything or why didn't you do this which is a lot of public response, I would say, that people get for waiting to talk about something traumatic that has happened a long time ago. But you have to really get into that person's shoes and go, okay, well, if this was your way of making money, we all need money in life to support ourselves. And that was being threatened. It's not going to be easy to just say, okay, I'm going to confront my boss
0: about this. Yes, and I think that um, I you know, have acted as a, an advisor and expert for other women in cases. And, and many women have lost their job in the context of these lawsuits. I myself uh, lost my job for five years and then was reinstated. But being a doctor, you can practice outside of the setting that you're in, and my wonderful partner Stephen reminded me of that this morning. He said, "Well, you did lose your job, but you kept fighting because you could work somewhere else." Right, and. One of the things I remember about the Goodyear lawsuit and most of the industrial lawsuits that the women had to stay in those settings. And that was just really, really horrible. I think the idea that I could always work on the fringes of medicine, though I wasn't in the university system, at least it gave me a sense of identity.
1: Yeah, a sense of identity and also a way to make some income, because if you're paying for lawsuits, (laughs) if you're, you know, like, that's part of the power system, is if you can't afford the resources that are there, then you don't have, it doesn't matter that you have access to them, you can't afford them.
0: Yes, and just to say that these lawsuits were very expensive, the EOC itself fights for free for women and groups of women. But- You almost need, you do need an attorney to put forward the suit to the EEOC because it's very complex. Having done that and written the papers, there's a lot of documents. I I think it would be very hard for women to do that alone. And an attorney can often articulate your story in a way that's differently from you, the individual, who's often been traumatized and finds it hard to stand up for yourself.
1: Well, it's really a team
0: effort there. Yes. Yes. So I think, I think about all the women out there today, and I think there are women who stay in their job. They're afraid to complain because of these things that we're talking about still, that they might lose their job. They needed to pay childcare. You know, that's what Lily says. Really, she needed to pay for her kids. And I think that's what keeps a lot of women in very tough jobs at lower pay, too.
1: Well, I think just to provide kind of some of the rebuttals that I hear too, not that I agree with them, but that I do see them and I have heard people express them, is really this idea. I think we really have to look at confronting this idea that women just need to ask for more because it's really not that simple. And there are major consequences to that, too, because from a systemic perspective, there are the expectations of what is reasonable for a woman, what is reasonable for a man, and they differ. I don't remember if we talked about this yet, but they were looking at doing some data research on an experiment with resumes. So they took somebody, these fake people, and they made up the same exact resume, and all they did And made them look like a fantastic candidate in terms of, I can't remember if it was a management position or it was some some kind of higher up position. And the only thing they did was change the first name. So it was like, I don't know if you remember what I'm talking, (laughs) Amber. And do you remember the name of the man? I don't remember. But something Burr. And what they found is that they got very different responses based on whether or not they had sent the resume for Ann Burr or Mike Burr, we'll call him. I unfortunately don't remember his actual name, but... I think it's, it's very telling and it's important to talk about how the system affects a lot of these things. Because as a woman, you may want to champion your right to get equal pay. But if the person you're dealing with even subconsciously doesn't believe that you're deserving or that the skills that you're demonstrating are seen in a different light because of your gender, it really makes a big difference.
0: Well, it reminds me, this sort of thing, um, it's often hidden (laughs) that women are making less. So my experience was until, uh, and Lily's was similar, that until the EEOC came in, they were able to access really the pay codes, they were able to show the dramatic differences between men's and women's pay, that it really... For equal work for equal work, in fact, sometimes more work, quite honestly, on the part of the woman, that is. It really took a while, I think, for both men and women to realize the difference, because I I think men maybe were not aware that I was making so much less than men I was employed with, certainly the supervisors' were. You know, so it's a very different situation, but women are not aware of that. They're not aware that they're being paid less, um, that there are other perks being given, that a male preferentially will get the job. You know, what you're talking about, that study that really showed if it is a man, there's a much greater likelihood that they'll get a job. And um, it means that females have to be very highly qualified and still don't, you know, achieve in the same way.
1: And that's part of it. And I think what's even more striking about it is they use the same words. So they're, they're key words that are taken for, manage- for high level positions where you want somebody presumably who is going to be a good leader, right? So it's a leadership position. But the qualities that the way they're ascribed to each gender are very different so a man who is is very loud and pushes forward his ideas and assertive seen as a really good thing whereas when a woman does that it's seen as a very negative thing and so it's the same behaviors being labeled differently
0: and that study really looked at uh, gender leadership roles And gender leadership roles um, really look for different things in men and women. Aggressive women, you know, assertive women are seen as aggressive, whereas assertive men are seen as assertive, and that's a good thing. You know, so it really is, you know, a woman in leadership position is in a bind, you know, because she has to portray herself in a way where she's not outside the gender role for a woman leader. And at the same time, she really has to hold on to the job and do the job that's required. So it's a very complex area. One of the things that helped me, I took a number of courses in women in leadership in the 80s, and uh, uh, that helped me run a large service. There were about 73 people who work for me, which isn't... A lot of women today have many more people, but it was still a job point of leadership. And there was a lot that I had to learn. And I faced a lot of struggles because women, you know, and men that work for me really didn't want to see me as the leader. So there was a lot of struggle with that. But, you know, again, the courses helped seeing other women and struggling in the same way helped. There were a lot of things that made a difference there.
1: I think also it's about redefining what it means to be a leader, right? This is kind of later on down the road. But I think we have, we've talked about many times, this power over structure. And it's not the only way. And in fact, it can silence a lot of people with a lot of really good
0: ideas. Right. And thinking of women in positions of leadership, the, the ideas that come forward are really one of connection. So you're looking for strength at every level and interconnection you know, and how that works. And it's not a top-down system, but you're really building. I think of it more like a cross-hatching where there's leadership connecting in all directions. And that is, I think, very different. It's a goal for the future, um, but it's one I see, in, um, for example, in my own family, where women, in, the women in my family are becoming strong leaders and they really are connecting with each other in a more equal way. And my family, like many, used to have men in positions of power, and it was a top-down leadership program.
1: And it's we need more women and men who support that type of system working on it together to show that the effects of it can really benefit not just women but also men really i mean i don't even like using just these gendered terms really all people right and and so being able to to create space to to even demonstrate that is very hard in a system where you anytime there is going to be a shift to the system you're always going to have people who are pushing back and so it's how do we not let ourselves be isolated how do we find power, how do we stay connected, and how do we keep fighting?
0: And how do we share power? You know, power sharing and what that's really involved with that. And I agree with you. I think men suffered greatly. You know, there were men enacting, you know, most of these abuses against me. The chancellor of the university was one person, but in a position of tremendous power and uh, had an opportunity to act differently and didn't and really made the system a lot worse you know but those individuals i think suffered too with what they did how they had to act with the structure that enforced their behavior you know i do see that but there were you know personal injustices that i suffered from them that are you know they loom large but i also see this other part of it You know, that they too, the system did not benefit them really at all.
1: And it's incredible to me going back to the whole equal payday concept that four months, that's like a, what is that? That's like a quarter of the year in which you're behind Mm
0: -hmm. every year every year. And um, they, uh, one of the writers about this says that uh, computes, you know, that amount is the amount that it costs for child care, right. you know, for the average woman. So you suffer that. And then there's the cost this, of- exactly. So women struggle with, you know, I don't make this money. So that puts the burden in a, a relationship you know on the woman then to do something else to make up for the extra money she doesn't make around childcare and you know, it's another topic we're going to talk about, but boy, the childcare balance in our country is disastrous for men and women.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it ruins the gender relationships, I think.
1: And so I wonder about what if what if there were more transparency in the workplace. I think people who get worried or nervous or even angry about transparency, they tend to be the ones who are hiding something. And so I do think, you know, I remember having a conversation maybe like three years ago with one of my male colleagues and talking about one of the... The workplaces he was in, and that they were going to reveal how much everybody was paid. And he was really upset about it because he felt like he had worked really hard to earn his bonus and all this stuff. And it was very interesting to hear that perspective because to me, it was like, well, if you feel like you earned that bonus, then you should be fine with it being transparent, you know? So it was very interesting to. Have that conversation. But I think transparency is one of the things we teach in terms of building trust in in relationships and within, you know, romantic relationships and things. I don't understand why we can't build trust in our workplaces with that same kind of transparency.
0: That's absolutely right. And I don't, I think it doesn't only have to be the salaries, it's also hours of work. Because women often put in more hours of work when you count the extra time that they work on things, maybe late at night. Yes, they have to go pick up their children at 5.30, but they're putting in extra hours at other times. And I think hours of work is a big thing. Extra perks. Um, I know at the university, many of the men were given bonuses to buy homes um and their homes were funded when they brought people in, and this did not happen to women, too. Um, so there's many, many things that I think could be looked at, extra perks to bring them on, extra monies that they're offered for their research, or to bring them so the, the attracting fees that certain people get, the, then looking at the pay and equity, and then all of the other things along the way, the bonuses afterwards you're talking about. So there's a lot of ways that they can get around the pay differential. So I think a lot of different things could be looked at, Jennifer.
1: It's interesting because when I'm thinking about equal pay, I'm thinking about all those things as included. You know, I'm thinking about just your general, like, what are you getting in? But it's true. A lot of times that's how things are snuck in. It's like, well, right. look at this salary. Mm-hmm. They have the same salary, but this person got this huge bonus and this person didn't. So that was a wonderful point. I'm, I want to <laughs> highlight that and I'm glad that you brought that up.
0: I think those are some of the things as a female worker in the 80s and 90s and onward, um, you know, that I notice because you would notice, well, why do they end up with this home and what's involved with that? And then you hear about it. So there are under the table type arrangements that go on and those have to be looked at too. I think the pay grade, they may be fearful about these EEOC potential suits, but these other areas are ways that they can really disguise it also giving men greater responsibilities, but not really, you know, so they give them a higher title. So again, it should be also pay grade and title that is looked at.
1: I mean, I think general transparency in the whole process is really what's going to be necessary. I think what infuriates me is hearing about examples where, you know, maybe a woman is trying to go for a bonus or go for a raise and they're told, oh, we don't have that you know, we, we don't have the funds for that. And then another male colleague, you know, is getting a bonus. So it's just if you saw that whole picture, it would become very clear where obviously you did have that, you just weren't going to give it to her.
0: I couldn't agree more. And you know, I hear um, just in fairness, I think these situations are happening with my daughter's. You know, potentially with you, though you're self-employed, and I think that offers great security in some ways for women, Um, though it's risky in other ways. Mm -hmm. It's risky in other ways. But uh, I do see young women really, you know, facing just what you're saying, going to bosses and being told that the things they produced, either financially or otherwise, don't deserve these raises. And I think raises need to be looked at, too. Well, I guess this is our way to celebrate this important day, Equal Pay Day, because we're looking really for that day to come about. And I think that day should be right about January 1.
1: (laughs) I think so, too. I think that would would make things a lot better in a lot of ways for a lot of people,
0: honestly. That make a new year, a new year forever. Uh, well Jennifer thank you for encouraging me to talk about this subject and I encourage everyone to look at it's online Lily Ledbetter's editorial in the New York Times Me Too can help close the gender pay gap and another reason for all of us to be tuned into Me Too.
1: Yes absolutely many reasons and I I think as as you're talking about that it's it's one of the I think there's so many things going through my head right now, but I think one of the big things is that we cannot all fight all the things. And so we really have to figure out what are some of the areas that if we pour a lot of our energy into are going to have the biggest ripple effect. And I think childcare definitely is one which we're gonna be talking about soon, but also the closing that gender gap.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Lynn. Oh. Let's talk about